0: Hello and welcome to the Sandro Forte podcast. Over the many years I've been running a successful business, I've met directly or indirectly many successful people from entrepreneurs, sports stars, celebrities, and dare I say, even royalty. So what makes someone successful? Do we even know what success is? And the all-important question, can we create it for ourselves? This podcast series invites a diverse group of people to share their insights, their wisdom and the things they've learned along the way. Namo Shiri is dubbed London's Mr Basketball. In 2011, he set up and became Head of Basketball Operations with the newly formed London City Royals. But Shiri's life could have turned out very differently. His parents split when he was just four years old and by 14 he lived alone in Kings Cross, London. This tough start in life could have seen him easily fall into a life of drugs and crime but when he discovered basketball he put all of his focus into the sport. His talent gave him the opportunity to earn a scholarship to play in America but he hit another hurdle when he broke his ankle and was told he'd never play again. Once again his steely determination saw him fight back and he found his way back onto the court, being awarded the scholarship he'd always dreamed of. That wasn't the last of the big knockbacks in life, however. He reconnected with his father in Zimbabwe, though unfortunately soon after, his father passed away. Basketball continued to give Namo the focus he needed to keep going. He now not only runs London City Royals, but is also the founder of Midnight Madness, a late-night basketball session set up to keep young people off the street, which is endorsed by the likes of Buster Rhymes and Chris Brown. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce our guest today, Namo Shiri. Welcome. I'm well, happy to be here. Happy to be here. Great to have you with us. Heard so much about you. Really looking forward to this. Um, Right. We don't have very long, I'm afraid. No worries. And given our brief conversation before we started today, uh, there's loads of stuff that I think we'd all like to hear about. But mm-hmm. it would be fair to say, wouldn't it, that you didn't really have the easiest start in life. Your parents mm-hmm. split when you were very young. Indeed. Um, you're known as Mr. Basketball. Uh, indeed. So we'll find out okay. a lot about that in a moment. but. Um, where did your inspiration come from? Because most people that have achieved something in life have been taken there by somebody of influence. Well, you didn't really have that, did you? So where did... Where did tell us about your early life and how it all came about. I say to people, actually, that
1: um, basketball found me rather than me finding basketball. Um, and it came into me at a time in my life where I think I probably needed it the most. And uh, actually, although there's nobody famous in terms of introduction certainly my best friend was the, the one that actually brought me to the sport and uh by default really because to go back to your point didn't have the easiest of childhoods um grew up in a very dysfunctional um, home situation and which led to me being on my own actually from the age of 14 various ramifications around all of that stuff but you know no parental guidance at home um and actually at that point of vulnerability uh where i could have gone many different directions right and uh, Certainly, you know, if you look at the statistics, look at where I was living, you know, uh, and the demographics all around it, you know, I certainly could have ended up in a very, very different place. And fortunately, I had a really, really good friend by the name of Sean Goldborn, who, you know, at that point in time was a very, very good basketball player, uh, best friend at school. And I used to follow the guy everywhere, really, because became, you know, my only kind of former family, if you like. And because he was so good at basketball, I mean, we both used to play football, actually. Funny enough, not many people know this, he used to be a pretty good footballer. But uh, being tall for my age put me in defense, right? And I remember clear as day. We played a game up at the marshes and uh, it was a nil-nil draw after 90 minutes. It was wet, muddy, coming in from um, the mud into the locker room, being covered in mud, thinking, that oh, there's gotta be something else, surely, right? And actually, at the time, as I said, my friend was very good at basketball. He was England internationally, under 15 age group, and took. I followed him into the gym at school. I had a very good PE teacher at the time who was enthusiastic about basketball and actually a good school team, not that I knew it at the time. And I remember walking into the gym for the first time, and it was just a a revelation to me. I think the revelation really was about um, it felt warm, welcoming. Um, You know, the first time I felt the ball in my hands, it just, uh, you know, I remember it to this day, it was just... Something moved inside me, right? And uh, certainly the, the teacher, my PE teacher, Mr. Breeze at the time, had said, Look, you know, he didn't let me kind of join in the main games. He goes, You're going to stand underneath the basket, you know, shoot 100 this way, 100 that way. And I just remember, you know, those first few shots putting the ball into the rim and hearing, the, you know, the net ripple and, you know, just something stirred me. It really did. And uh, I think because uh, it was new, it was, um, I think for me, Um, I felt, I suppose, safe and secure. And prior to that, you know, in my life, I hadn't really had that security. Um, And I also felt, you know, and I think back to it all, for the first time, I was being given something that I kind of controlled relative to the outcomes that come with it. And so, you know, um, I know now, obviously, what was happening, but back then, it was really just about um, getting closer to this new sport, which I enjoyed. My best friend played, and we just used to end up playing literally every day. And the more I got into it, obviously, the better I got. And, you know, we were traveling across London to all these different gyms and playing. And then we ended up playing um, a school game against, uh, at that time, the Powerhouses of Basketball, which is the East London Royals, okay? And um, played against that team, the school team version of it anyway. And their coach said, look, we'd like you to join the team. I did uh, the team was the most successful junior team back then at the national league level. Um, the year after uh, getting involved with that team, my best friend got a scholarship, which is really unheard of back then, to America. And to put it into context, you know, I literally was with my friend every day, right? He was my I suppose my only support structure, right? And you know, when he went to America, all I had left after that really was basketball. And so for me he went to America. I didn't know anything about the system back then. I thought, well, I've got to go to America. So my training went up to another level. It was literally seven days a week, morning, noon, and night outside of classwork. And, you know, fortunately a year later, I was able to get selected too, to get to go to America. And I went off to America, um, I think it was the first when I was 17, just when I did my first year of uh, A-level if I remember correctly. And, you know, going to America was a whole different experience i'll tell you that now but i mean prior to getting to america you know the, the whole love affair with basketball for me you know as i look back on it it was um i say it found me at the right time because it just occupied my mind um it gave me structure um gave me discipline um showed me the value of work ethic and also you know i think for the first time gave me this spark where I felt I was in control of my own destiny as opposed to being, you know, subject to what, uh, the environment around me was at the time. So, you know, for me, um, I didn't at that point in time, to be fair, start playing basketball with any visions of, a, a career or anything like that. You know, I didn't really know anything about a career back then, you know, certainly, um, coming from where I was coming from, you know, a career for me was getting through the month, right? It was, um, you know, you didn't have any long-term goals or plans. It was really day-to-day, right? Where's your next meal coming from, right? And doing that kind of stuff. So you know, for me, basketball, I think, was an escape route, but I didn't know it at the time, right? And the, the sport for me is taking me around the world. Um, it's opened up doors for me um, and, and really given me experiences that have profoundly changed my life. And, you know, and just pr- pretty much on every level, to be fair. And although when I got into the system in America, my goal was, yep, you know what, now I understand that everybody should be aspiring to pay in the NBA. Well, I'm going to do that too. All right. Limited information on how to do it, you know, just getting on with it. And similarly, back then, not having the information around even where I was going in America, because back then, you know, a lot of people today can't quite fathom it, but you know, there were no YouTubes, there were no, you know, it was back in the day of the the 56K modem, right, if anybody knows what that is. right? So, you know, access to information was extremely limited. And if you got a scholarship from London to go to America, anywhere in America was seen as hugely successful. Mm. I actually ended up going to Kentucky to a really small town called Providence. had 6,000 people total. (laughs) So there's this kid from London coming from a background of millions in a diverse city to a really Southern, small, in every sense of the word, um, city. But, you know, the people were welcoming and, and the school was, you know, it was just amazing to me because, um, you know, they had a, a real sense of family there, which was great and it was new to me, you know. Um, and, you know, the basketball was constant, but however, you know, the school wasn't very good um not very much profile there and in terms of getting onto a college scholarship which really is the next step for you it really was uh, extremely limited nobody from that school went on to college and so you know here i was in america thinking i'd made it but actually I had to start again and so you know again the training went to another level you know i just remember training harder and longer hours than everybody else and um i met and actually my friend sean and the group of players that i played with over here like four or five of them actually went over to america at the same time but they were at uh, as luck would have it they were over at a, a private school very well funded uh, great resource and everything else and we were at the public school not very well funded a very small profile <laughs> but it was, you know, the fact of the matter was that I was in america you know for me it was just a really big deal and you know i had um I, uh, I suppose, assigned myself to saying that, look, no matter my circumstances, I'm going to, you know, see where I can take this. And, you know, I remember doing, uh, I think it's probably the first time in my life uh, I remember having some structure around dedicated practice. Because before that, I just played for fun. And it was an everyday thing. And, you know, everybody talks about the 10,000 hours. You know, I'm going to say for basketball, you know, certainly by the time I was about twenty I'd probably put in 20,000 plus. You know, it was literally, you know, and... I think when I got to America, uh, if I look back and put it into context of today's thinking, um, America probably brought purposeful practice. You know, my way, and you know, I just remember doing um, so many things. That uh, after a while, you know, uh, I was able to turn off my conscious mind, you know, and play the game, you know, on autopilot. And if you can get to that point as an athlete, then, you know, you're uh, you're going to be in pretty good shape. Right. And so things did start to go well for me. You know, I, I did get some scholarship offers, not necessarily the ones I wanted, um, because I, in my mind back then, not knowing anything, you know, I thought that the only way you get to the NBA is by going to a Division One school, which is you know a big NCA One school, not the small ones. Not realizing actually there are multiple paths to get to that destination. But anyway, the schools I was getting were small, and um, you know I was determined to get a bigger one and uh, i held out and held out and kind of turned away all the small ones and then i finally got the bigger scholarship and the only stipulation was i had to come back to the uk for a year because i'd used up their whole allocation but i was happy because i got a scholarship to delaware state and i was like okay fantastic they play against georgetown all these big schools but then came back to the uk for a year and i was happy i'd come back to london actually i was happy because i had my scholarship papers and everything else and so i played here for a year and i just remember that time. You know, the game was just incredibly easy. Right? Coming back uh, to the UK was just incredibly easy. So I probably was a little bit brash back then. You know, arrogant little kid. You know, I probably wouldn't have liked myself back then as I am now. But that being said, um, you know, I came back for uh, the best part of a year, and close to the time I was supposed to go back to America, I had uh, just a freak accident at gym. You know going up to the rim um, somebody came up with me and came down and actually snapped my leg right in their leg just a freak accident and um again because it was here and the game isn't very well supported here you know the coaching system you know the medical system all that stuff that you would hope to be around sports wasn't there at the time. And uh, I remember the, the guy running the gym's like, oh, you probably just sprained your ankle. And I knew it wasn't sprained. But uh, one of my friends I was playing with at the time managed to get me and him to a, a hospital late at night. It was a royal free. I remember it vividly. And all these years later, I and mean, uh, we got there probably about maybe 1, 1 a.m. or so. By the time I got in to see um, anybody, it was a student nurse. And again, a lack of information, not knowing how these things really should work back then as a young kid. Um, I was just eager to make sure that my ankle got fixed, right? Because I was like, look, I'm supposed to go to America in eight weeks. And she'd oh, you'll be fine. You know, it it looks like, you know, it's just a clean break. You'll be uh, up on your feet in four weeks' time. So that was great. Um, However, what she didn't do was realign my bone. (laughs) And so, um, you know, what happened was invariably when I went back, you know, to get the cast off four or five weeks later, you know, um, and again, I'm not blaming the NHS. It's just the way it was, right? But I got the cast taken off. And if you go back to the point I was making before, I didn't have any parental support around me. Nobody to kind of really kind of guide me through the process of the questions I should be asking and everything else. I would spoken to the coach in America and told him about the break. But I said, look, I'll be back on my feet in six weeks' time. So he was a little bit uh, concerned, but he was okay. Right, you'll be back out here. We could do a good preseason. You'll be fine. So when I went back to the hospital, they took the cast off, and uh, the consultant I remember was looking at my ankle really uh you know perplexed way did the x-rays and you know i said to him look you know how long before i can start playing again and i still remember you know chillingly you know to this day him um kind of almost smirking and half i said no you're not going to be playing basketball again you'll be lucky to run for a bus again this is a serious thing we'll have to re-break your ankle um, and, and put it in, uh, you know, I've still got it at home, actually, like a big masonry screw through the ankle and a plate, and I've got a plate in there now, actually, and all these smaller um, screws to kind of keep the thing aligned. And at that time, you know, uh, I remember just uh, phasing out half of what he said because I was like, I just can't believe what you're telling me. And I remember, you know, being in a little bit of a stupor and being like, well, you know, this can't be happening to me. I don't understand why it's happening to me. And uh, I remember one of the toughest conversations speaking to the coach and telling him what was happening. And to be fair, look, I, I was bitter for a while at his response, but, you know, I get it. At the end of the day, um, I was a scholarship athlete taking up a scholarship, you know, which, you know, in America, people don't understand, it's a business. And pretty much like professional sports is here. And if you're a, a Division One uh, professional, Division One college coach in America, it's like being a professional coach over here. And so, you know, if you've got a player who isn't even in the country, um, you know, hasn't played a day for you yet and, and is already injured. You know, you're going to want to try and take that. It's not right, it's not ethical, but I can understand why he wants to take it back. But anyway, he, he took the scholarship back, uh, reassigned it to someone else because there was no prognosis for when I'd even play again. And uh, long story short, I was in plaster for best part of a year. I uh, had three, three operations of re breaking the ankle, realigning, putting various different screws in and stuff. Um, and, you know, in all of this time, at not one point did I think about culpability and think about, well, who's responsible? That just wasn't on my mind. Um, what I do remember at that time, and the reason why this part of my life was so poignant, is because um, I was told I wasn't going to play again. And the whole thing about not playing again, for me, wasn't about, oh, you're taking my dream away of playing in the NBA. What I have come to realise, actually, is the basketball court was my sanctuary, right? It was my safe place, you know, it was my family, it was all of those things, and... No, to tell me I wasn't gonna be able to do that again was probably the point where, you know, for me, it was just too much of a, uh, I think, I just couldn't accept it, right? And it was too much of a, uh, I think, something for me to comprehend at that time. And I didn't have an alternative, right? However, I mean, I've never, I've always been a a good student, right? But for me, with nobody really pushing education, nobody pushing any other options, you know, I'm somebody who uh, has learnt uh, all of the things I've learned have been self-taught, right? In, in terms of uh, how to operate as a functional adult, all of these things, right? And uh, I, I've been good at faking it till you make it, you know, in public when I was a lot younger, right? And people thinking, okay, he knows what he's talking about. But I'm just kind of mirroring people, right? And the thing for me was that was just something I, I realized I couldn't deal with emotionally. And so I refused to accept it, which is really interesting for me when I review my life. And I remember being in the, uh, the hospital bed and actually my friend had come back from America that summer and he was, you know, he was, you know, making light of it and laughing about it. And, um, you know, I just remember having a, when a doctor came to me and said that, look, you're not going to uh, be able to do all these things again. Uh, when they finally took the cast off, off the last operation, I mean, it used to feel as if somebody was like hitting your ankle with a hammer. That's the first way I could probably explain it. was very, very painful. But they they set physio up for me. And I'd already said to myself, I don't know how, um, but I'm just not accepting not playing again. So, what happened was when I went to physio, um, you know, it was uh, the atrophy in my leg was just uh, devastating. You know, all I had was a bone and flesh, right? But when I went to physio, they were giving me um, rehab of doing five exercises of this, five of that, 10 of that. And again, with nobody guiding me uh, in this instance, it was it was good because I'd go back to um, uh, and at the time I was staying in my in my brother's place, right? He had a bed sit, and I was staying at my brother's place, and you know there was this step um, and one of the exercises I had to do with like toe raises, right? One foot of toe raises, probably do five of those. But I remember, you know, just doing literally thousands. Like my calves, even to this day, are really big, right? And they're big because <laughs> standing on that step, you know, doing thousands of toe raises until your muscle would collapse. You know, you'd wait till it recovers and get up again. Probably going against all medical advice at the time in terms of, you know, the bone um, rehab and everything else. But, you no, know, for me, again, it was about getting back in control of something I could control, which is my own uh, attitude and my own effort and applying it to the situation and going against, I suppose, what the the medics were saying. But again, I felt I controlled those two things and as a result, um, you know, condensing a big part of the story down. But as a result, you know, they were amazed at just how well I was able to rehab and ultimately what happened from it all. I changed my game. I lost a step, you know, lost some spring, but it made me, I think, a smarter player, uh, a more considered player. Um, and I was able to come back. And I, and I came back and I played. Um, and actually, funny enough, got a ch- chance to go out to uh, America again a couple of years later to one of the smaller schools that were recruiting me before. And it was getting through a friend that I had, I had helped originally to get out to America when they liked how I played out there. And so I did get a chance to go back out to America again. And I went out to America again, still now thinking, okay, the gene is reignited. I'm a different player. I still want to play division one basketball. The coach at the time said, look, if you do well here, we don't mind if you transfer. Soon found out that wasn't true either. But um, I went out there just reinvigorated and, you know, really again was doing well because of the dedication to the sport and everything else. And, you know, uh, again, there's these peaks and troughs about your journey and, and where you're supposed to be in life and what you're supposed to do. I go out to this school and everything is in my mind going to plan. So much so my first year out there, the, the coach made me captain of the team and there was this big fanfare about he's going to be a transformative player, all that great stuff. And um, you know, we were playing all these big schools, well, two big schools in particular on our roster. And I was like, right, I'm going to circle those dates to really play well so I get seen. and you know, prior to going out to my freshman year at this college in, in Virginia, um, I managed to reconnect with my dad, okay? And and without going into, uh, I know we're on a, on a timeline here, but without going into too much detail, you know, I was um, separated from my dad at a young age, mm. uh, not by my choice or his, and, you know, put into a highly dysfunctional situation. And the reconnection for me, you know, I was grown, you know, at that point. You know, as I, I said I was grown. I was, I was 21 years old. Right? I thought I was grown. But um, I certainly, you know, um, um, you know, although I was 21, I probably had been through life experiences of somebody double my age, right? And so reconnecting with him was uh, just, uh, it was very, very emotional for him and I to hear about everything I'd been through. And I hear it from his side too, which gave me perspective. But I, I came away, and sorry, I should also say, And this is in Zimbabwe where he had moved back to, right? And so, you know, it was, uh, I think, culturally um, and paternally a really, really enriching and solidifying experience for me. So I was going into college, you know, probably feeling the best I'd ever felt, right? Uh, I think emotionally, spiritually, and everything else. But what I didn't realize is, um, you know, uh, we had a great three weeks over the summer. I was like, look, you know, uh, he gave me that kind of long, probably a second too long hug you know when i was leaving but i didn't pay any mind and then what happened was you know uh, when i got to america the game started and things were going well you know i got a letter uh, i don't remember it to this day in my dorm um, letting me know that I actually um, it's from my sister saying that my dad was going to pass away and he had terminal cancer um three months to live all right and so for me in any normal of situation uh, if, I mean you say normal who can deal with it in a normal situation right? but certainly on my pathway I think if it happened at another time before we reconnected I perhaps could have handled it with a little bit more um, I suppose perspective but given everything I've been through it just kind of shocked me you know shocked me because I'd been given the stability I'd um, been given the warmth and haven't taken away again. So I went to speak to the coach about it and he was like, look, you know, take as long as you need, you know? And I said, look, I'm having a tough time, you know, dealing with it. And I had the choice, do I stay at college for three more months or do I go and spend, you know, the last few days with my dad? So really for me, it was no choice. Mm. And so when I left college, the coach said, look, you can come back after. Uh, But when I left, you know, uh, you know, my teammates were telling me that he was just, you know, slating me, saying about no commitment and all the rest of it. I was like, you know, I'm done with this. And, you know, when my dad passed away, I was reeling for a while, you know, emotionally, not really too sure, you know, why I'd been through all the peaks and shots I had been through. And, you know, uh, I think that's probably the second time in terms of vulnerability, I've been able to go down one road or another, you know, and uh, again, as a, a young adult, you know, there were a lot more vices open to me then, um, and, you know, I just remember for a few months in particular, you know, it was bad, you know, it was bad. And, um, you know, I probably ended up doing things I wasn't proud of, you know, if I look back now, again, didn't break any laws, but, you know, probably got close to it. And, um, I said to myself, you know, um, I, I kind of remember feeling desensitized, uh, just around, again, I'm not saying I was ever suicidal. I wouldn't go that far. Okay. But certainly... Was at a loss for as to what my purpose in life was going to be, and you know I just remember waking up one day and, and just feeling that I missed the game, right? And so I just uh, you know I started playing again for fun, um, and again I was a pretty good player, um, and so it didn't take long before you know teams up here got interested in me, and I started playing professionally over here for a while. Um, but to be fair, and this is no slight on um, on on anybody here, but you know, if you're on a certain trajectory as a professional athlete, and that trajectory is the top, you know, if you're now um, um, heading in a different direction and the, the competition maybe isn't quite as good or the opportunity is quite, not quite as good, you know, I think from a competitive standpoint, you know, you lose a little bit of fire. And I, and I think, make no mistake about it, when I was in America, you know, I was playing two steps above the pace, you come back to the UK, um, even the league back then was better than it is now. But, uh, you know, the competition is quite not quite there. It's almost like tantamount to a heavyweight boxer taking some easy fights mm. before you come up against, you know, that Buster Douglas, who's really going to let you know what time <laughs> it is, right? So for me, I, I got to a point where I was like, you know, is this really what I want to do? You know, and uh, certainly the projections of professional player back then just didn't look like it was going to be able to sustain, you know, me and at that time, uh, I would met my fiance, who now is my wife for many, many years. Um, you know, and, and actually, you know, when my dad passed away, I think that made me emotionally, um, you know, feel a little bit more. Uh, I think committed to trying to build something up for myself from a family standpoint. You know, and I had my first daughter, I've got three daughters now with my wife. And um, you know, I just uh, at that time with my first baby on the way, I said to myself, look, you know, there's got to be another way. And I think at that time you know with the commitments around having a new family i said to myself look uh, when i thought about what do i want to do i'd always said to myself along the way that there were so many bumps and bruises on this pathway for me that uh, could have been avoided if there was somebody who um, i suppose i aspire to be like today to help guide show and uh, direct my actions and give me perspective because a lot of young people just don't have perspective yeah. you know they always think it's one way and that's it and uh, what you obviously realise with some maturity and some experience is, you know, it's never just one way, you know, to skin a cat, so to speak. And you know, what I wanted to do is try to create more opportunities because I realised in America, the playing field is very different. I think mean, in America, uh, if you're a young player and you play basketball, you've got multiple opportunities, whereas in this country, you literally have to be thankful for anything that comes your way in our sport. So I wanted to try to change that and um, give I suppose as I look back on it uh, retrospectively, give young versions of myself more access to opportunities, um, not only to perhaps get to America or Europe or wherever it might be, but also to give them a perspective and and making sure that uh, they understand the value of education. And then when I um, engage young people now, it's like, look, Given the basketball, what do you see? And obviously, oh, it's a ball, it's a ball. What are you gonna do with it? Oh, I can shoot mm. it in the basket, but actually it's not a ball, it's a passport. Mm. You know, It's a ticket, it's a key, it can open up doors for you. You know, If you use the sport the right way, because the sport will use you. If you're talented, the sport will use you. But if you use the sport, then I think, um, um, you can get a fair trade-off, mm. and and I think mm. that's really what I try to do with, uh, um, you know, the sport from a grassroots standpoint in terms of engaging young people mm. today, and uh, that probably gave me the precursor to what happened post. Playing. And that was uh, I started coaching to give back through that uh, that way. And at that time, because I was quite well known and knew a lot of the players and a, a lot of the network, I was working for Nike as a consultant to help bring them some bring some initiatives um, their way. And uh, I came up with an idea back then. You know, I uh, was living in West London in uh, in Harleson at the time, a real tough part of London. And uh, the issues that we have today, in as a gun and knife crime, were prevalent then as they are today. And there were kids that I were coaching at the time who weren't, you know, uh, gun, knife, gun toting, you know, knife toting, dangerous to society, but they were surrounded by it much like I was. Mm-hmm. And so my thing was like, look, i need to do something for them to take their focus away from that using basketball that maybe can influence some of their peers. So I came up with this idea of Midnight Madness and and Midnight Madness was an event that um, uh, I staged through the night at a local gym that I hired in West London. And it was really for that core group of kids that I was coaching. But because there was nothing like it at the time, and just to explain what it was, it was an event that had, when I first started, recreational basketball, just rock up and play. I bought my tape box and it was tapes back then. No, <laughs> there was no Spotify finding anything like that. Forget that, right? It was uh, my tape box from my, my bedroom, my TV, and my, uh, a really kind of ancient version of a, a gaming console. Mm. Um, so you had the, the music, a gaming console. Uh, my girlfriend bought the microwave and a are warming up patties through the night. And we just created this um, environment where young people could come have fun with basketball was the focus, but with music and all the other elements to it. And it just, you know, I didn't expect it to be as popular as it was, but it quickly became, you know, hugely popular. I planned to do it with 40 people. That first summer we saw over a thousand young kids through the doors. I spoke to Nike about it. They loved the idea because it was through the night and it was edgy and all that kind of stuff. Um, It was a a no crime zone, even though we were doing it in places where some people perhaps were a little uh, nervous to go at night we put Midnight Madness in, you know, all of that is almost like a safe zone, right? Um, This whole stuff about post-Code Wars and stuff, not a Midnight Madness, That's a safe zone, right? And we've tested it, not only in London, but up in Birmingham and everywhere else. And it was using basketball as a tool, because I knew if we can get the ball into their hands, perhaps they have the same experience I did. And then this can be um, something that can steer you off the streets and into you know, education, you know, into opening up your networks and opening up your minds and widening your horizons. And so it went really well. Nike got on board, turned it into a national tour. Eventually, because of the numbers um, we were drawing, I mean, at its peak, we were getting like, you know, 10, 15,000 people a summer trying to apply to play at this very limited opportunity. Um, You know, I got to a point where we turned it into a talent identification competition because we're just getting so many kids through the door. And, And, you know, our term, was we take them from street all the way through to elite and we were drawing international players in regular street ball players. And it was just the place that you wanted to be at. It was just mm-hmm. a cool spot and you know Nike helped with that as well, for sure. But uh, the whole concept of Midnight Madness is just kind of uh, went to the next level and people started to kind of term it the X factor of basketball because it's a successful summer initiative that's taking place in a country that's been resistant to basketball success. And so, because of it, um, you know, we found a lot of talent over the years. And uh, since we started, you know, again, this is going back, uh, what, 15, 16 years now. But since we started, there's been over 300 players that have come through our events that have turned pro, um, 250-plus have gone on to college scholarships, um, and so many more have been positively impacted by the sport. 90% of the GB national team have played at Midnight Madness. Um, We got to the point where we were doing our big finals at Wembley, and then the winning team would take... Internationally, to play at different places and spaces to get them seen. Uh, We've been all over the place, you know, New York, LA, Chicago, Miami, you know, Washington, Paris, multiple times, Milan, just Caribbean. It's been a a really wild but uh, exhilarating ride. And again, not expected from my standpoint. Uh, It wasn't what I planned to do at the beginning. But again, I think using basketball and creating more access to opportunity for young people as a motivation. That's, you know, what's happened. And I think all of that served as a precursor to this latest chapter in my life, which has been, um, you know, we got to a point in uh, uh, about 2009, 2010, where Midnight Madness was really strong. We did Wembley Arena, had 8, 9,000 people in there. You know, it was on Channel 4. You know, 1.8 million people saw it on TV. Fantastic for basketball in this country. Um, and there were so many people saying, oh, Midnight Madness is fantastic. It's the only thing I do you know, for basketball in this country, I'm not interested in anything else. And when we were kind of breaking through, that was really flattering. Oh, fantastic, we've got something that's going really well. But actually, I'm what you'll call a basketball lifer. The sport's been good to me personally. And I realized actually, you know, if we're gonna grow the sport in this country to give more kids access to opportunities to be playing the sport, you know, we can't just have Midnight Madness. There's gotta be more, right? And we've gotta have a stronger uh, infrastructure at the grassroots level. Um, The governing body have been, had their ups and downs in terms of what they've been able to do in that arena. And so, you know, around 2010, the Olympics were coming up a couple of years later, um, two things happened. One, I realised that we need to do something with grassroots, okay? We'd always kind of been dabbling in coaching um well, I, I said to, uh, i said look the time's come for us to you know uh, do something a little bit more so we took some of our sponsorship money from nike and put it into this plan which was the london school of basketball london school of basketball essentially is about building infrastructure at the grassroots level um, empowering coaches to go into communities build teams get more kids playing then get them playing in our grassroots league and setting up some type of a funnel system a pyramid system which has gone extremely well. Uh, back in the Olympics, you know, we were commissioned to get 5,000 kids playing across London, we've got 10,000, um, and that kind of gives us the ground bed for um, starting this
0: professional team, which we're now on, which is the London City Royals. Well done. Um, do you know what I've loved about this? This isn't an interview, it's, it's like an autobiography. It's been fantastic. <laughs> uh, and all these all these ideas and questions I had floating around in my head, you've answered them all in, in 30 <laughs> minutes, it's been amazing. Um, What I've heard then, so I'll summarise rather than ask you a few questions, but I do have one more question to ask you. So I've heard along the way many different directions. You know, we're all faced, aren't we, with lots of different choices in life. Um, Basketball found you. You didn't find it. Um, And respectfully... Mm you didn't tell me you were born with talent. A lot of people look at people like you and say, well, you know, he's had it easy. I know your background mm. certainly isn't that way, but, you know, he was born with talent, so it was mm. easy with him. That that really isn't the case not from at all. what I've heard. Not at all. Um, support structure, if it's not parents, a friend or a mm-hmm. basketball court. Yeah. Um, and what I love in particular, Namo, is this going the extra mile, you know, all those... Those And you do have particularly big calf muscles, but I mean, (laughs) that that is testament to uh, to how much work you put in. And what I heard most poignantly of all was, it's okay to be vulnerable. Absolutely. Um, So some amazing things out of there. So let's try and summarize all that Mm -hmm. with one simple question. We ask all our guests this question. All the things that you know, all the things you've learned along the way, all those great experiences and not so great experiences you've had, what advice imagining now that you're talking to a younger version of yourself with all those amazing things that you've learned along the way, good and bad, what advice would you give to yourself knowing what you know now? I think the most important thing is self-belief. All right? you don't get,
1: other people don't get to, to, to determine your outcome. You do. And it's going to be steered by work ethic. Okay? You can't escape the fact that if you want anything worthwhile in life, you have to work for it and you have to be willing to do what other people are not willing to do as far as that goes. And if you're willing to do that, you'll get what you need. Um, and also, you know, don't be afraid to get things wrong. Okay? You need to have some vulnerability. It's the only way you're gonna find out you know, what it is that you really need to learn. I've always said to people, you know, I don't lose in anything, I learn. Right? So if you don't get the result you want, what did you learn from it? Right? How are you gonna modify and come back better? And as long as you're fueled by the work ethic and belief in yourself, Anything really is possible.
0: If I don't lose, I learn. What a, what a brilliant way to end, unfortunately, all too early, uh, today's podcast thank you so much i'd I'd love to talk more with you and i'm sure the time will come when we get the opportunity to do that if you'll come back obviously so namo just Mm -hmm. quickly um loads of people listening will want to know a lot more about you Mm -hmm. so tell us where do we find out about namo shiri
1: the two places two best places um, i'm still heavily involved with the london city royals i'm the director of basketball operations there and that's londoncityroyals.com and from the grassroots standpoint it's london-basketball.com Both of those two websites will have all the information about what I'm involved in, a little bit of backstory
0: on me, how you can interact with me on social media and all those kind of things. So they're the two websites you need to focus on. What can I say? On behalf of everyone listening, thank you so much for sharing so openly and honestly your, your incredible journey. It's been really uplifting. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. That was the Sandro Forte podcast and what a fantastic guest Namo Shiri was. There are many more fantastic guests joining me over the coming weeks, so please make sure you subscribe if you want to pick up some great tips on success. And I'm sure you know this by now. Please follow us on social media at Sandro's Podcast. That's Sandro's with an S. Same on all channels. And keep the stories, the ideas, the anecdotes, the challenges, or whatever motivates you coming. Email me at hello at sandrospodcast.com. And if you can, please leave a review on iTunes so we know what you'd like more of in the future. Until next week.